a day late, but still we want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and also welcome to the last Sunday morning of 2021. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, I hope everyone has had a good year and a good Christmas. We are going to uh, stand to our feet. We're going to sing a few Christmas songs this morning, some worship songs, and just give praise and worship to our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing together. the Lord. You guys can sit down. So I'm going to be sharing from our Bible reading plan. We've been reading through the Bible the past two years, so we're near the end. So I'll be uh, sharing a passage of scripture from the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles open, please turn to Revelation chapter 21, please. I would like to give you a glimpse of heaven, something to look forward to. So please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I'll be reading from verse 1 through 5. So God's word says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. So let us keep our eyes fixed on this, on the fact that we have um, these words that are faithful and true. And we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. So let us remember we're not going to have heaven just yet. That is yet to come. Praise the Lord, church. Let's continue in worship. Let's all stand to our feet.
blessed to dwell. Amen. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for taking on flesh and becoming man and living among us, Lord, and living a perfect, sinless life and sacrificing it for us in our place, Lord. We can never repay you. We can only say thank you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Jared, for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, Christ Community Church. We continue last message of this year, the Servant of God, titled The Gospel Forecast. And we will read today's scripture as follows, reading from Mark uh, chapter 8. I will ask you guys to stand as we read scripture, beginning in verse 31. And it reads as follows. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Let us pray as we receive God's word today, led by our pastor. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we are thankful and grateful, Lord, that we can gather here uh, and receive your word, Lord, Father God. We thank you for our pastor whom has prepared this week uh, to bring this word to us so that it may edify our mind, our body, and our spirit, Lord. We ask that you remove any distractions, Lord, so that we may fully separate this time for you, O oh God. In Jesus' heavenly holy name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning also, church, again. Good morning to our guests, friends with us today. And thank you, Brother Robert. Yes, last Sunday of the year, and as Jared mentioned, aren't we glad in some ways this year is over, all right? We had certain expectations about this year. Speaking of expectations, John Quincy Adams, are you familiar with him? He's the son of one of the founding fathers, John Adams. And he held more important offices than anyone in the history of the United States. You may not know that. He served with distinction as president, senator, congressman. He was a minister to major European powers. He was part of the War of 1812 and events leading up to the Civil War. Yet at age 70, with all that behind him, this is what he wrote in his biography, quote, my whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I ever undertook. Can you believe that, that he said that? He was a victim of false expectations, I think. Aren't we all? I mean, we have great and sometimes, I think, unrealistic expectations of ourselves, of each other, our kids, our families, coworkers, friends, all of that. 
And, and I've been a victim of that, not meeting maybe someone else's expectations, not meeting my own or others falling short in my eyes, and that's a problem. It's a problem for all of us. And a, a day removed from Christmas, it's safe to say the world has that problem with expectations of Jesus Christ, right? He's my friend. He's going to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. Others will say he's just a good moral philosopher, or he's a legend, or he's a myth, or he was supposed to be a great social justice reformer and a politician of his time. Why aren't things different that way, right? That's just false expectation. It's going to disappoint skeptics every time. And guess who else had that problem? The apostles, followers of Jesus, as we're going to see in this text today. They have issues with Jesus' job description as the Son of God and Messiah. They expected that he should have done this or that or been this way or that way. And, of course, why not? They knew better. And that brings us to the first of three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection here in the middle section of Mark's gospel. Because the Lord is wrapping up here again. Remember where we are. He's wrapping up the last part of two years of Galilean public ministry. And he's doing it with the final training session for the 12 before they all head down to Jerusalem in the home stretch. That's where the apostles are going to plant the church. And he gives them, Jesus gives them here a shocker of a news forecast that just blows up their expectations of him. And the timing, the flow of the conversation when this happens is perfect because the Lord Jesus had just affirmed Peter's great confession. We saw that in Mark 8 last time. That being, remember, Jesus asked them, the 12, who do people say that I am? And Peter said it. On their behalf, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's good. But what you're going to see here is while they got that identity part right, they didn't get the job description right. What is the Son of God? What is he supposed to do? What is this Messiah about? Why did he come? And what happens when you hear and don't like the job description? Especially because it involves a sacrifice on the part of the followers. And it's a sacrifice they weren't expecting, including, I should say, many professing Christians today. So that's what we're dealing with here in this first gospel forecast delivered by Jesus, where you're going to find really two things. You're going to find some predictions, and you're going to find rebukes. Let's start with the predictions in verse 1, where we're at. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Threefold forecast there, and this kind of foretelling of a very near prophecy from the prophet, and it brings both bad news and good news, which, of course, is what the gospel is about. You can't appreciate the good news without the bad news. And he tells them three things. I'm going to have to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And the Greek word there for killed is destroyed. It has the idea of what would happen to someone when they're executed. So the idea is the gospel actually tells you, tells us, you have to bear a cross before you bear a crown. You have to bear a cross before you wear a crown. That's the Christian life. Because it was for Christ, and it is for every one of us, his followers, in a sense. He's got to give his followers the bad news first before he gives them the first good news in the forecast here. 
bad news is, again, the Lord's enemies are going to come hard after him when he gets to Jerusalem because it's their final mission to do away with Jesus once and for all, death being their preferred option. Who's doing this? Who's behind this? We know the enemies. The Sanhedrin, basically, that's the Supreme Court of Israel at that time, 70 men that were split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the civil leadership of that nation at that time. They're referred to here as the elders, okay? And then you have the scribes. They were lawyers. They were theologians, scholars, and they were perpetuating this unbiblical, legalistic, rabbinical religion we call Judaism. And they're going to join together with Pilate, with Herod, the Romans, to unjustly try and condemn Christ, literally torture him, although they didn't think of that as torture at the time. We certainly would. And they're going to have him being executed. They're going to execute him for basically just being who he was supposed to be, which is the king of Israel, yes, and the entire world for that matter. And they didn't like it. Why? False expectations. Peter and the apostles didn't like that the Messiah is talking about suffering, suffering. The word there in the original language is where we get the word passion from, like passion of the Christ. He's going to die without an earthly kingdom in place. So it's kind of like they're thinking, you mean you're going to die first and then set up your kingdom? I don't get that. That doesn't really make sense. And it didn't make sense to them because they're thinking politically. You know, they're thinking a king comes, conquers, sets up a kingdom, rules, and then dies at the end of his life. That's the flow for them. It's not for God. But for them, after all, Jesus looks like, feels like, talks like, eats like a human being. They always struggled at this point in time with his divinity, his deity. They don't fully grasp it yet. You know, and they don't have the constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit like you and I have. So their theology, their discernment is not where it's eventually going to be. They're spiritual milk-drinking infants, really, who, who presupposed almost like all the Jews of that time that the Christ, the Son of God, that Peter just confessed, they got that indeed he was the Messiah, but they had a doubt and a lingering that continued in their minds of what kind of Messiah is he going to be? They couldn't get the difference, listen, between the first and the second comings of Christ. There are people around today still don't get that. They lumped all the prophecies, all the prior predictions together, and they expected a Davidic kind of a king to come, conquer, rule, and reign, and kick out the Roman Empire, set up the kingdom right then and there in their lifetime. But again, their timing and expectations were off. I blogged that this week for Christmas. The Lord, the Lord, though, is telling them what the real mission of the Messiah is. You see, because they don't make room for bad news here in their messianic picture. They think after all the preaching and the miracles, he's just going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be crowned. It's going to be good times for God's people. And you know, Palm Sunday would seem to confirm that, right? Coming in, people, Hosanna, Hosanna. Looks like it's going to happen. But they didn't get... Maybe understand, maybe remember, for instance, Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, or have a finger there, by the way. Isaiah 53, a very familiar prophecy of the suffering servant who's going to be the Messiah. You can think of Isaiah, by the way, as kind of like the gospel of the Old Testament. 
the gospel of the Old Testament. It gives you good news to come. But there's some bad news in there. This is written five centuries before Christ, and it says this in Isaiah 53.3, talking about he, the Messiah, to come. He was despised, and there, he's talking past tense as if this has already happened. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Very true. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, your Bible may say the scourging, that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So that's talking, that's predicting perfectly the burial to come. In the middle of verse 12, it says, he was numbered with the transgressors, or sinners, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So to you and I and the Holy Spirit, we're reading the New Testament in light of that passage. We, oh, I get it. That's got like Jesus all over it. But there are Jews today that you'll read them that passage and they're, no, that's about Israel. Or that's not even in my copy of my Old Testament. I, I don't get that. I don't see that, even though we see it clear as day. You see, they like the idea, the apostles did, of Jesus as Lord and King. It's the Savior part and what he had to do to be Savior that they're struggling with and how it happens. But what is amazing, though, I want you to see this about the bad news here, is the means by which God so often wills, purposes, and plans to do something good or better with what is bad. That's so key for us, for our encouragement, for our courage and comfort, right? Because the verse here in Isaiah the prediction says this suffering and death of the Christ is what God has to use to his accomplish his plan for the redemption of the world. Christ, it says in the text, must suffer and die. That Greek word must has with it the idea of necessity. It had to happen that way. Why? So that many, according to Isaiah and chapter 10 of this gospel, many can be ransomed from death and be saved. That's God's plan. That's how it has to happen. No sin, no savior. No sacrificial death to make atonement to pay the price of sin. And the rejection part for him, we've already seen. We've been following the Lord in Mark's gospel, and the Jews have already called him a blasphemer. They dared call him the name of a demon, Beelzebub. Right? That's suffering. That's rejection. More is to come. But all the Lord's predictions are going to come to pass. And we have a massive example here. I want to show you on the sovereign providence of God on display that you should see, you should note, you should marvel at, and you should worship God and how he works things together, which is what providence means. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see a very fascinating passage overlooked by too many in showing God's work in redemption, God's work in everything. Acts chapter 2.23 now Peter is preaching to the Jews. This is the first sermon of the church. This is in Jerusalem. Peter's preaching, and he's just talking about how in the midst of them, they knew, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and, acknowledge and foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let that sink in. There's two amazing things that are going on there. You got bad news and good news in the same event. And what you see is that God planned the triune Godhead before eternity passed, in eternity passed, before creation, before Genesis 1, planned that Christ would die. This is Jesus didn't die because all of a sudden, well, Pilate and the Jews got mad at him. God didn't see it coming, threw him a curveball, and, uh, well, what are we going to do with this? No, it was the preordained foreknowledge and plan of God, his purpose, his will for this to happen. And if we didn't get it the first time, he says it again when he's preaching to the church, telling them to praise God, turn the page, Acts chapter 4, toward the end, it says in verse 27, this is speaking on the Lord, as if he's speaking to the Lord, Peter writes, for truly, he says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. That's amazing to me. It is the mysterious, amazing will of decree of God, which I shared recently with our men, I've mentioned before, in which God tolerates, He uses, He decrees, He ordains and orders that evil and sin exist in the world, that which is bad, and He sovereignly turns it into good, something good, better, or best, and God glorifies. It's mysterious, though, in that God is still holding sinners accountable and responsible for their sin. People are making choices. They're making sinful choices following their heart and their evil predispositions. And God is manipulating, using them to accomplish his plan from eternity past. Absolutely amazing. I love that about God. He's doing all this for greater good. And by the way, you see this all over Scripture. This is not isolated. You know the story of Job, okay? God's providence, the Jews in captivity, the blind man in John 9, Joseph, of course. Remember Joseph was confronted with his brothers. They sold him into slavery. In Egypt, he was unjustly imprisoned for years, left for dead by his family, suffered much. They're reconciling toward the end of the story, the end of Genesis chapter 50, and the brothers are before Joseph, and he tells them this. As for you... You meant, or in Hebrew, you planned evil against me, but God meant it, same Hebrew word, planned it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that awesome? There's nothing random that happens in the universe. Nothing. I don't even use that word when I talk to people because why? What's the point? If, if God is real, there is nothing such as luck, random, or coincidence. You can eliminate the three words from your vocabulary if you're talking about things that happen in the world. If the God of the Scripture we just heard is the God of the Scripture. Absolutely amazing. Bring it about. He brings it about. In the Hebrew, that's God's will, His purpose to make something happen. He did it, ultimately. And I'll give you one more 
contemporary example. I know I like to go to more than once, but it's so, it's so fitting. Johnny Erickson Tata. Of course, she's that woman of God who suffered so much as a quadriplegic, among other issues, health issues over many years, has a tremendous ministry, has had as a result of that as well. She said of her circumstances in an interview of a book she wrote called The God I Love, and she talks about her bad news this way. She says, quote, I think suffering is God's way of sometimes waking us up out of our spiritual slumber with an ice-cold splash in the face and getting us seriously to consider his claims, who he is and where we're going. Some people might look at this wheelchair I'm in and think that I would have titled the book The God I Hate. But I want to explain, she says, to people that when you go through the toughest of times, it is a wheelchair. In a wheelchair, that can be your passport to joy and to peace in such a way I would have never have dreamed possible when I was on my feet. She says, I would really rather be in this chair knowing him than on my feet without him. That is singularly one of the most remarkable sentences I've read in my entire life. I could not, I don't think I could bring myself to say that. That woman's at a whole nother plane, whole nother level of sanctification. That's Christ-like, that we'd like to be at. And she says, the I think the last line of the book sums it up. There are more important things in life than walking. providential God. Literally, he governs evil, pain, and suffering, including the death of his own son. I take you back to Isaiah 53. Can't leave Isaiah 53 without giving you this part. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Who? Who smote Jesus? His father. The father kills the son for you. Amazing. That word smitten in Hebrew has the idea of beaten, slaughtered. Middle of verse 6. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Adonai has laid on him, Jesus, to come, the iniquity or sin of us all. And then look at the beginning of verse 10. Yet it was the will, there's that word, purpose or plan, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That is the sovereign providence of God. That is what Peter and the apostles failed to see. What did they fail to do that we've been talking about in Mark? They couldn't connect the dots. And then secondly, in verse 31, back in our text, the good news of this little triad here in the forecast of this verse is just the miraculous resurrection of the Son of God on the third day after having been murdered and buried, right? He's going to die, but he's not going to stay that way. The bad news leads to the good news, but Peter's focused on the bad news. That little bit of news in the forecast is going to lead to something else. Look at the rebukes starting in verse 32. And he, Peter, said this plainly, or this is Jesus, saying what he said plainly about the prediction, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, first thing is the Lord's not holding anything back. When it says he's speaking to him plainly, that's what he means in this prediction. 
There's no more parables for the 12, no beating around the bush. There's no more Jews here in earshot. He's, and he's even talking in the imperfect tense in the Greek, meaning he's saying it over and over, this, this continuous action, said it more than one time. And we know that's true because the Lord repeats this prediction to them in chapter 9 of Mark, then in chapter 10. And what does Peter do in response? Speaking to the others. Folks, he literally reprimanded Jesus, God in the flesh, king of the universe, for talking like that. In fact, in Matthew's account, it says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Really? That's a rebuke. And that's the same word describing what our Lord would do when he would cast out demons earlier in this gospel. Rebuke is, can be a good word. It's a common, necessary, biblical word, not only that parents do with their children, all the time, in fact, because it just literally means to admonish or correct. And even Christians can do it with one another when it's done correctly in love. But it's a strong Greek compound word that has the idea of opposing something, going against somebody. And in the positive sense, you would do it for their own good. And that's what Peter's trying to do here with Jesus. It's like he's saying, Jesus, you can't say that. We just can't have you do that. <laughs> the audacity, the audacity at one level to do that. But you know one thing I do appreciate in Peter's rebuke, if you can appreciate anything in it, he took him aside, the text says, which is a word that carries the idea of you have a good friend or a loved one and you take them by the hand and you pull them to a little private spot to do this. But I think it got loud because the disciples heard it. And the Lord's comeback really describes what the rebuke is all about. Look at the last verse in the text, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It literally, original language has the idea of just get away from me, not necessarily like get behind me to follow me. It's just get away. In fact, in Matthew... It says, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. Someone cleverly wrote that Peter went from being a rock to a stumbling block. So when Jesus rebukes Peter, he does it, though, in Satan's name. Did you catch that? Because he knows who's behind this little change of heart. The Lord is rebuking Satan through Peter. And by the way, I want to tell you, I don't suggest you try this at home. Don't do it. We only see Christ and his apostles, who are the foundation of the church, rebuking and casting out demons in Scripture. There is no biblical instruction in the New Testament for believers to get into that kind of verbal battle with Satan or, a, or an enemy. You have to be careful with how you deal with the devil and his demons. C.S. Lewis warned in his screw tape letters, he said, Quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think he's right. And to be clear here, Peter was not possessed by the enemy. That's not for Christians. It can't happen to true, born-again believers of Christ. First John tells us, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, right? But he is being oppressed, being tempted by the enemy. The enemy, you, you should know this, the enemy of your souls can tempt you or lead you to think, say, and do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. 
and tempt you to sin. And here it's talk, sinful talk and attitude. The New Living Translation, a modern paraphrase, puts that verse this way. You are, or the last part, you are seeing things merely, Peter, from a human point of view, not from God. See, setting your mind on something is being of the same mind. There's a unity of thought, and that's what Peter lost here. Peter went, it's amazing, in one moment here in the conversation, virtually, he goes from the great confession to a demonically influenced rebuke from the Lord. You know, yes, you're the Son of God. And by the way, no, you can't do what the Son of God's supposed to do. You can't go to the cross. And he's being basically a spokesman for the devil, right? Now, remember, this is the theological part you have to get. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Since the fall in the garden, Genesis 3, there was something called the proto-evangelum, the pre-good news, pre-gospel, where Satan, trying to bruise the heel, right, of the baby, Satan has been after Jesus, trying to keep him from the cross for centuries. He tried to kill him as a baby when Herod, he tempted Herod to kill the babies two and under in Bethlehem, remember? After Christmas? In the wilderness, preparing for his ministry, Satan approached the Lord with a threefold temptation he brings to each and every one of you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's like Satan's thinking, if I can't beat him, I'll see if I can have him join me. The enemy offered him kingdoms, all the world's riches, the world's worship, all of that to no avail. So then in a last-ditch effort to trip up Christ on the way to the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and is in his ear. You know what you're going to do? You know what you're going to suffer? You know what's going to happen to you in the next 24 hours? tried to get him to think twice about going to the cross, which is why the Lord asked the inner circle of disciples, would you stay up just an hour or two and pray for me, pray with me? Which they didn't. Why did Satan want to keep Christ from the cross? Why? I think you know. That's where atonement is made, where salvation, where redemption is secured by Jesus, like Romans 3 tells us. The payment for sin is made there. Souls are saved that way. This is a centuries-old battle for men's souls between the devil and the Lord. Satan learned the mission of the Messiah. He got it right before Peter did at this point. So he's trying to do, Satan is trying to do whatever he can to keep Christ from the cross, even using a little friendly rebuke from an apostle, trying to take as many unredeemed sinners into hell with him as he can. That's his goal. It's a numbers battle of souls. And that's why if, you're, if you find yourself talking like Peter, or if you're living for the world, you may be walking around close to the kingdom of darkness, okay? You may be further from the kingdom of lights than you want to be, than you should be, all right? That's a dangerous place to be. What we're doing is we're looking at spiritual warfare here, folks, plain and simple. Satan is trying to get to Jesus and keep him from the cross by playing Peter as a pawn in the chess game of life. He's using him. And he does that to us all the time when he tries to turn the trials and the tests the Lord Jesus allows in our life and tries to turn them into temptations to doubt him or to sin, to quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. 
And so you don't want to listen. You don't want to be that man or woman. Young or old, I've said before, we've said it here again, don't pick fights with the devil. In fact, Peter would later write, quote, angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against demons before the Lord. The angels don't even do that. So how do you handle the devil? Spiritual warfare. We could spend a lot of time talking about that just for a moment. You need to resist, flee from the devil, as the biblical language puts it. Run away from. You don't take him on. You run. You go the other way. And you do that in righteousness, holiness. And you do it in faith by putting on the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6. That is the most direct, detailed instruction on how to deal with demons for Christians in all of the Bible. Ephesians 6 armor, that that helmet of truth, that understanding of the gospel, resting in saving faith. Peter and the apostles, they would eventually comprehend, by the way, the gospel news. They would fully get it enough so they could preach it, write it. Okay, they're going to come around like Paul did, 1 Corinthians 15. He laid out what he said was a first importance for people to hear. He said that, quote, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Scripture he's talking about is Old Testament, folks, Old Testament prophecies and predictions. So Peter up front is hearing the prediction from Jesus. Paul on the back end in the mid-first century is saying, this is it. This is what it was. This is why it was. This is why you have to have it. So fortunately, see, we have the Scriptures complete here. So we have the proper expectation, getting back to that, of God and Christ, ourselves, and what the mission of the Messiah is. We have that. So we can now live this and give it to others. Amen? So I want to say it's okay to question God sometimes. You just don't want to rebuke God. Okay? Not if you know what's good for you. All right? I wanted to share with you a bit about his sovereign providence. He sees what you can't even imagine. He sees the past, present, and future all before him at one time. God is transcendent out of space, time, and matter. He created it all. He had to be out of space, time, and matter to make it all, right? So God doesn't need a rewind button. He just sees it all, and he does it all. And we're in the plan. So we can't put ourselves on his throne because there's only room for him. And he's the sovereign of the universe. He made us, he rules over us, and he can do with us whatever he wants. And he will. And you're going to live and work and do and be a part of that. So we pray as if everything depended on God, which it does. And as we say, we do as if it depended on us. God is free. Just keep this in mind. We are not totally free. Only God is. We have freedom. We have freedom. But only God is totally free, willing, and able to do what is absolutely right and best, even turning bad news into good news, as the Lord predicted here. We don't have that kind of freedom. But thank God, God is totally free to be who he is. And so spread that news and give it with the proper expectations, okay? I close when someone asked that 19th century founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, what he would do if he knew his Lord would return at that time the next day. He said this in effect, quote, I would go to bed and go to sleep, 
wake up in the morning and go on with my work, for I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. Period. That's it. Let's just obey and do what God commands us to do. Let's not worry about the job description. The Lord has told us all we need to know about who he is and what he's doing. Anything else is TMI. You know what TMI means, right? Too much information? Yeah? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is sufficient, all sufficient, all authoritative, all necessary, all creditable, all clear, Lord, to tell us what we need to know about you and about your gospel here, Lord, as we've seen in this gospel forecast through the predictions and the rebukes, Lord, we see what you have for us. We see that you work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. It's one of the greatest promises in the Scripture. And that really encompasses our text and what we've been talking about today. But however, it's a qualified, conditional promise. You work all things together for good to those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. That's the church, the elect. And if someone here today and listening in, in this room and outside, that will hear it later, if they believe or they doubt whether they are in Christ, they are a believer, let today be the day of salvation while they have opportunity, while they have a chance to repent and believe, to make a commitment in their heart, as we'll talk about in more in depth next time, to turn from you, from sin and selfishness, and to trust in Jesus alone as the sacrifice, the once and for all final payment of the penalty, making sacrifice for our sins, Lord, so that we can live an abundant, peaceful, joyful life now in whatever circumstance and eternally with you forevermore in perfect joy and peace today as we heard read earlier in our service. Lord God, we pray that someone will make that commitment today, Lord, commit to following you, to confessing you as Lord Jesus and believing that you have been raised from the dead so they would be saved. We pray these things and we pray that God's people will take this message out now at this time. We pray in Jesus' name and we said, amen. Pastor Alex. Good morning again, Christ Mini Church. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Let's give thanks for our offering this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in your sovereignty, in your timing, in your plan, Lord, that you've uh, chosen to put us here in this place at this time for your purposes, Lord. And we are thankful that we can meet here. Um, during this season, Lord, where we celebrate the birth and the incarnation of your son, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the time that we've had with family and friends to celebrate that birth, Lord. And we thank you for this place. We thank you for this uh, meeting place that we have, Lord, that we can proclaim your word and speak of Christ and what he has done for us, Lord, and speak sing of your glory and your majesty. 
God, we thank you for this offering. We thank you, Lord, that you've blessed us uh, with such abundance. And we're thankful, Lord, that you will do with it what you uh, deem, Lord. And we know it will be glorifying to you, Lord. We know that it will build up your kingdom and bring more worshipers in spirit and truth, Lord. That is our prayer, and you will do with it. Uh, what you will, Lord, but we know that you will be glorified through this offering, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, once again, uh, there will be no shepherd group meeting this Tuesday night, but we are picking it up uh, the following Tuesday on January 4th, 2022. We'll start getting ready to write 22 instead of 21 because, you know, it always takes about three months before we get that figured out. 2022, uh, January 4th. Uh, Tuesday will be, the ladies group will be meeting, uh, continuing in Pray Big. Uh, currently, uh, we're looking for a host home for that, or do we have one? Jackie is hosting it, all right. We'll confirm, though there's time, but we'll let you know and confirm, and uh, if needed, there will be Zoom available if you're unable to make it in person. Uh, uh, Thursday night, this Thursday, we are starting our prayer meetings again, so uh December 30th, 2021, still, uh, we'll be having our prayer meeting this Thursday night. You should get the Zoom invite. It's the same one we've been using for the past two years. So, <laughs> uh, But if not, you'll get it sh uh, shortly, uh, tomorrow or Tuesday. Uh, we do have an, uh, an ask. If you would like to add any kind of prayer request to the monthly prayer guide, that would be uh, great. We'll take those updates, prayer requests anything of that nature by this Tuesday so we can get in the prayer guide so we can get it back out to everybody uh, so you can be praying for the group uh, for those. You know, we have plenty of uh, salvation prayers there, uh, provision prayers, uh, but most of the list is salvation, and we continue to pray for those that are lost, especially, especially, especially family members and close friends. Uh, but we, we, we'll make it as long as we need. Uh, We'll just keep adding. It's all electronic now, so it doesn't matter how many pieces of paper we use, right? But we, we want to have, you know, as many names listed there. And that's all we had in the way of announcements. I think, uh, Pastor Bernie, you have an update on what happened at the, uh, at the uh, social family.
call his name? Jesus. Save his people from their sins. Yes. All this, why? Why, why is that happening? Took place. Fulfill what the prophet. Oh, yeah, what the Lord. Through who? Through who? Their son, Emmanuel. Okay, all right. Well, that was. pray. Lord, we thank you once again for this meeting, for this gathering. Lord, we lift up these names to you. Lord, all these people that are feeling uh, ill, Lord, have some illness, some with COVID, Lord, uh, the Rizzos, Lord, feeling, not feeling well, Lord, we don't know their status with COVID, but either way, Lord, we pray for healing for them, that they would be comforted, especially with all the children, Lord, protect their children from getting whatever they may have. Lord, we lift up Veronica who has COVID, as well as uh, Tony, Stephanie's brother, who also has COVID. Lord, we pray for healing for them and comfort, Lord, and uh, salvation if they don't know you. Lord, that they would lean on you for comfort. And we would ask that uh, Monica and Stephanie both would be able to minister to their family members, Lord. And uh, for Jared's father, who also just tested positive for COVID. Lord, he's been sick for some time. Uh, father, we pray that he would come through uh, quickly. And uh, please protect the rest of his family as well, Lord. We do lift up Oda in, Cu in Cuba, Lord, uh, Grace's aunt, who uh, now at least they have a diagnosis of what's going on with her, Lord. Uh, but, Lord, we need provision. We need provision by your grace that they would have the uh, appropriate uh, medicines, Lord, to be able to do the tests necessary, Lord, and uh, for her health, to improve her health. Father, we ask for salvation for her, most importantly. Lord, we do pray for uh, David and his family, Judy's son, that they would arrive here safely to enjoy uh, time uh, with Judy and, and her family. Lord, we pray for our uh, young brother David, who's on his way back as well from the Carolinas. And Lord, we give you praise for 
the report that Patty gave us, Lord, the disabled veteran who not only uh, did you provide him with uh, $3,000, Lord, to get him through uh, this short period, Lord, but you provided him with work. Lord, we give you praise for that. We, we pray that he would glorify you through his job, that he would sing your praises, Lord. We know that he's given you glory already. And Father, we thank you for uh, how Patty brought his plight to us, Lord, and how you've responded and, and testified, Lord, to your mercy and grace to this man. Father, we ask that you would uh, be with the rest of our families that are traveling and who, are, uh, who may be sick and not able to come, Lord, for whatever reason, Lord. We pray that you would bless all of us, play, uh, bless, bless us this week, Lord, as we uh, go out into this world, Lord, proclaim, proclaiming Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.